following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. probably notice right away that what you're going to hear won't be as smart as what you're used to hearing. Um, that's okay. I know who I am compared to my brother. But I think it's important for me to disclose to you where I'm coming from whenever I preach anywhere. Uh, I am convinced with all my heart that in the evangelical church in America, we are overeducated so far beyond our obedience that it is an embarrassment before the Lord. And what I mean by that is our greatest need is not more knowledge, but more practicing of the knowledge God has entrusted to us. Do you know what I mean? I don't think the greatest need in the church today is that we would get more out of God's word, but that God's word would get more out of us. So I heard Pastor Reggie say that he is the trailer team, and everyone laughed, but if there's nobody else on the trailer team... The laugh's on you, right? Because I think in the end, it's not us agreeing with each other and agreeing with the Lord, but that our hands and feet agree with our mouths and our brains so that somehow at the end of the day, we are not a vegetative body, but a body that moves by the will of the Lord, who is the head of the church. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it's a coma. You're, you're, you're basically, your brain's there, but the body's limp. It won't move. And so I, that's where I come from whenever I preach is that the greatest need in every church is that we would not understand more, but that we would live out more of what God has already shown us. And so that's my mission this morning, is to point out to you things you probably already know, but to exhort you in the love of God to live out your faith. Amen? I want to read for you a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me just turn up this thing here. And we're going to read verses 1 through 11. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And so we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. It's the word of God. I just want you to know nobody here at Emmanuel put me up to this message. Uh, When I find out my brother was sick and I offered to preach in his place, this is the message the Lord gave me on my heart for this church. And so please don't perceive any hidden agenda here because whenever we talk about money and giving in the church, a lot of people get their hackles up. Uh, Maybe because you grew up in a church tradition where every time the preacher got up there, they wanted your money. And you're like, what is this place, man? I want you to know that I'm not addressing a church that is unfaithful in giving. I've been hearing about how God is working in this congregation. And so please don't receive this as a rebuke. 
but as a call to great faithfulness for the glory of God. Generosity is a funny thing because I think we have mixed emotions about it. I think most people genuinely feel good when they're able to give something to someone else who really needs it. And there's this feeling of deep satisfaction when you realize what was overflow for you has become vitally important and a means of survival for somebody else. So at that moment, you just love it. If you watch Survivor, I recently watched the episode where they're, they're ambassadors for Survivor and they're giving away backpacks to little kids. And the one guy who doesn't even like kids is like, yeah, I don't even like kids, but that was pretty cool. I, I think even the most reluctant among us feel that innate satisfaction in helping others. But here's where the mixed feelings come in. At the same moment that I'm enjoying giving away, I'm also counting the opportunity cost to me of what that giving represents. I mean, there are some people every week as they're writing their offering check, and they times it by four or five, and like, that's a payment on a Mercedes, man. That's a lot of money. Every time you give to the Lord or to somebody else, you can't help but think what else. You, and everybody's got their, their standard of economics, right? For me, it's Apple products. Every time I give away something to somebody, I'm thinking, how many iPads would that have been? Uh, could I have upgraded my laptop if I had just not given this? I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's Pandora Charms or something else, but everybody's got something. And that's why it's so interesting that the word for generosity in the New Testament, the word most often translated generous or generosity, is this Greek word haplates, which also, if you translate it another way, means single-minded. It's a very interesting pairing of meanings. The same Greek word is translated single-minded and generous. And I believe what that means is that mixed feeling, that divided mind you have, where at the same moment you rejoice in giving while you regret giving, that one of the marks of spiritual maturity is that over time, that duality will integrate into one mind. That the joy of giving will eclipse that regret you have of what else you could have done with that money. Does that make sense to you? It reminds me of the stingy guy who's always pinching penny, clipping coupons, turning people away until he falls in love with a young lady. And then all of a sudden, nothing's too expensive, and he just wishes he had more money and more money to lavish upon the person he loves. I really think that's the heart of it, isn't it? That there's something single-minded about the heart that truly is generous. And that is one of the marks of our spiritual maturity. So if you want to know how spiritually mature you are, don't just think about how much Bible you know or how many missions trips you've gone on. Take a look at the, the way generosity works in your life. And you will have a very good, accurate measure of where you are in the, in the journey towards spiritual maturity. Now, the passage I just read for you is not just a collection of wise sayings. I think a lot of us, we read the Bible as though it's Confucius Analects, but spoken by Jesus. A scattered, disconnected uh, collection of wise sayings and, and truths. But really, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church, a specific church, in a specific historical situation. So let me give you a quick history lesson. Uh, I'll make this quick because some of you hate school. But when the Christian movement started, is, is this going to work if I hit that laser thing? There you go. Do you see that right there? That's where the Christian movement started in the city of Jerusalem and in, in what's now Israel. And largely through the work of the Apostle Paul, the missionary movement spread so that it went all over the place. And one of the places that Paul planted churches was in an area up here called Macedonia, northern Greece. He planted a few churches there, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. Those are churches he planted up there. And then he also came down here to Corinth, and he planted a church there as well. And what happened in the historical context is that a terrible famine broke out in Jerusalem, which is ground zero for the Christian movement. It is that place from which every Christian in the world at that time could trace their spiritual roots. And so the call went out from Jerusalem. You remember that great scene in The Lord of the Rings where they started lighting those towers, the, the fires, and he's like, oh, man, the call is going out, and you just wait and see who's going to see the beacon and come to our aid. It's such a great moment when you see all those armies riding in, and you're like, dude, this works. We put out the call, and people came. And that's what the church was doing in Jerusalem. They're saying, look, we are not just a little hungry. We are dying, and we want our brothers and sisters all over the land 
to send help so that we can survive. And one by one, the pledges came in. The first to make the pledge and the ones who made the largest, most phenomenal pledge were those in Corinth, down here. And Corinth was like New York, Paris, London, Tokyo. I've got to add Chicago because it's the greatest city in the world. All wrapped up into one city. It was the center of everything. And nobody was really surprised when the Corinthians said, yeah, we pledge like a gazillion dollars. Don't worry about it, guys. You will not go hungry as long as we're related to you in faith. And so the, the people in Jerusalem were greatly encouraged, but then that was it. <laughs> this really encouraging, massive pledge followed by zero dinero. That's discouraging, isn't it? When someone postures as though they're going to be God's deliverance in your life, and then you turn around and they're gone. And you were so encouraged by the desire, but so discouraged by the practice. So that's what was happening. Whereas in the meantime, the people up in Macedonia, they pledged, but they also gave. Now, the first observation I want to make out of this passage is that a generous spirit often flows out of pain. Okay? A generous spirit often flows out of pain. If you look at verse 1, Paul in the Greek here is bending over backwards to give us an idea of how scandalously poor the people in Macedonia were. He's not saying they were just like a little, like they didn't have two pennies rubbed together. They didn't even have one penny to just rub vigorously. They, these people were so poor, he's trying to find new words to describe to us how bad they were off. Okay? And yet it was out of that extreme poverty and their most severe trial that they gave with exceeding joy and generosity. Now, in every country, there's regional dynamics, aren't there? Where a certain part of the country that is widely regarded as a place from which the, shall we say, less sophisticated citizens are all pooled. And then there are other places where the, the really cool, hip, sophisticated, smart, rich people live. And it's often like the east versus the west or the north versus the south. In this region, it was the northerners that were regarded as the scandalously poor, backwards, unsophisticated hicks. And it was the people in Corinth in the south who considered themselves very cosmopolitan, very advanced in every way. And so you can imagine the sting when Paul goes, well, you know, you guys made a lot of noise about giving, but I need to compare you a little bit to your, your hillbilly brothers and sisters in the north. Man, have they given out of their deep poverty, they have proportionally outgiven you by orders of magnitude. And what's so interesting is it's not just this situation, but historically, even today, the U.S. Department of Labor um, has shown us this. The poor outgive the rich every single time as a proportion of their wealth. You know, we always hear these arguments like, oh, just wait, just wait. I'm almost there. As soon as my company's launched, as soon as I get my first million, I'm going to start orphanages and I'm going to give away... And I just go, yeah, all right. I think God's most common response to the things we say is, whatever. <laughs> I honestly think God's up there all day long going, just, whatever, all right, whatever, great, good, whatever. Because of the way we are, I think God is becoming somewhat disillusioned with us at times. Because we say things like, oh, someday when all this happens, I'm going to be different. But you are who you are. And giving you more things doesn't change the heart of who, what's there. Why is it that the poor outgive the rich? Isn't that completely counter to common sense? Doesn't it stand to reason that the more you have, the more you give? And yet every single time. And the poorest give, outgive the richest by an embarrassing margin. I thought long and hard about why this is the case. I could be wrong, but here's what I believe. I believe the poor give more because they still remember what it's like to be in need. I believe the freshness of their own pain, sometimes not just a memory, but a current experience, softens their hearts so that when somebody else is in pain, they don't just say, it sucks to be you, man. Wow. Is it, does it, is it uncomfortable to be that hungry? You know, you got some flies buzzing around your eyes. You should do something about that. 
And that's what we do sometimes when we don't know what it's like to be in need. We look and we marvel. We're kind of grossed out and we go, wow, thank God that that's not my life. Thank God that I can give my babies a little more than that. But the poor go, I know exactly what that feels like. I hated those flies buzzing around my eyes. And they outgive the rich every single time. And I think there's something to be learned there that out of the place of our deepest pain will often come the most overflowing ministry to others. Now, maybe it's not financial. Maybe for you, your experience was that high school was hell on earth. Can anybody relate to that? I, I, don't, want, I don't want to expose anyone, but how many of you would say high school is not your favorite period of your life? Okay. So a lot of people have that experience where high school was very difficult because of what was going on at home, because of what was going on with you and with your peers, and you never quite felt like you fit there, and nobody stepped into your life during that season and helped you figure out what's next. Well, out of that deep pain may come some of the most incredible youth ministry you've ever seen. Because whereas those who had a positive experience in high school were like, why don't you go out for extracurricular activities? Why don't you do this? And we're like, we don't know what it's like to be in high school and have it suck completely. I loved high school. That's why I was such a bad youth pastor. I loved high school, and I could not understand why any kid in high school would complain. This is the best golden time of the year. They're like, you are smoking something. We hate high school. And so I could not fully identify with the kids who are struggling. But I bet some of you can. And if you get involved with the youth of your church, I bet that out of that pain in your own story will come a ministry that will change the course of another person's life. You see, out of the place where we have our deepest wounds, God will often draw out the most amazing ministry. And that's why pain is not always something to cover up and forget. It's something to understand because likely... God will use you most in the very place where you experience the greatest hurt. Let me give you another observation from this text. The kind of generosity God's looking for is not the kind that says, well, what's the least I can give and still be okay with God? But really, it does as much as it can, as much as it is able there's a very curious thing that's happening in this text. It says, I testify that these poor, backward Macedonians gave as much as they were able entirely on their own. It says here, even beyond their ability. We'll explain in a minute what that means, but that's a very weird phrase, right? And then here's what, what I find so weird. It says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. Here's what's going on. The call goes out to give. And the Macedonians go, we want to give, and they say the amount, and Paul goes, look, they're just a little worse off than you. You guys are, they're starving to death. You're almost starving to death. I appreciate your heart, but I can't take that money from you. And he's got them in a position where they're literally begging, please take our money and bring it to Jerusalem. We want to help. I thought, what, what would cause this scenario to play out? Why would people have to beg for someone to take their money? Uh, I was helped in understanding this a couple years ago by a friend named Thomas Kim, who, run, who at that time ran a ministry called Churches Helping Churches. And they, they were formed by a couple mega churches coming together in order to help with the, the relief work in Haiti post-earthquake. And they said, everybody's helping the citizens in general, but nobody's targeting helping the church to rebuild. And the churches, if they're rebuilt, will become centers of healing and renewal for the community. So that's what they did. They, they rallied churches in the Western world to, to help churches in the, in the third world that are in need. And they started with Haiti, and they moved on beyond that. Well, here's what happened. You guys remember the tsunami that hit j the shores of Japan, and some of the hardest-hit people were in Fukushima. One church in particular had four campuses, uh, and each campus maybe 50 to a couple hundred people. But this was in Japan, mega, mega, mega church, okay? because it's such a non-Christian country. It was one of the most exciting, vibrant congregations, and they were decimated by this natural disaster. 
All four campuses completely destroyed. The congregation now homeless, both as a church and in many cases as individuals, wandering from refugee camp to refugee camp, discouraged and wondering what's going to happen next. This situation got the attention of churches helping churches, and they put out the call, and they let the brothers and sisters in Haiti just know, look, you're not alone in your suffering. Even the Japanese are struggling. That's the only reason they told it to them at all. It's just that you're not alone in your suffering. Well, these, these Haitian churches, these crazy people down there, about two dozen churches banded together, and they gave everything they had. They said, when we were at our lowest, brothers and sisters all over the world gave to us, and we recovered, and we have our hope again. And we can now fully understand what our brothers and sisters in Japan are going through. And so we've put together this collection, and they managed to come up with about $3,000 U.S. between about 24 churches. Now, some of us, I got 3000 right now. I could have written that check by myself, right? But you have to understand, by the relative economies, Japan's economy is something like 44 times stronger than Haiti's. You have to understand what that 3,000 represented. It could have built two entire full-standing facilities in Haiti. Just think about that. Two church buildings in Haiti. And these people forfeited that and gave it. And Thomas is standing there in the position of Paul going, Dudes, I so appreciate your heart. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell the story all over America and find someone to give 3000 You can keep your money, but you've encouraged us so much, you're going to spark a flood of giving. And the Haitians are like, what are you talking about? We want to actually give this money. We're not trying to inspire nobody. We want to give this money. We understand what they're going through. Now, you've got you to gotta appreciate the fact that 3000 in Japan, maybe the whole church's leadership team could eat at Denny's one night. I mean, the 3000 the amount itself is nothing. They could buy maybe two chairs for the back of the sanctuary. You know how expensive Japan is. But I went to a, a gathering in Schaumburg where the pastor of that church happened to be visiting. And he was giving his testimony, and it so stirred me because he said a lot of people helped. But it was when the Haitian church's gift was given to us along with that story that finally our congregation regained our wind. It was that gift that made all the difference spiritually between despairing and deciding to dig in and hope again. And it was that 3,000 that had an incalculable effect on the struggling congregation. You cannot put a monetary price tag on that. And it was out of this scandalous poverty that the Haitians gave as much as they can. And in fact, When it says they gave beyond their ability, what it means is they did not give out of the margin of here's all the things we want to do with our money and here's the trimmed off fat, the leftover, you can have this. I think that's the way most of us give. There's a standard of living I want to guard. This is how I expect to be able to live. And if there's anything left, you can have all of it. Because I roll like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm with the Lord, man. I will give anybody my excess, all right? But giving beyond their ability means... That in the act of giving, they went backwards a couple notches. They didn't stay at ground level and say, here's all the stuff that would have brought us to the penthouse. They said, we're going to go right down to just like right down here with you. Have you ever given to the point that you are about as bad off as the people you're helping? I think that's not even, it doesn't even compute in the American psyche. I, Honestly, I I can't imagine what that would feel like, but I think this is the goal of Christ. It's to teach us a heart that is willing to give so that I don't assume that my current standard of living, I have this inalienable right to guard. And as long as I don't dip below this, I'm fine giving away all the extra. But he says, when we give the way the Macedonians give, even beyond their ability meaning they became more poor because they made somebody else better off. And he says, whenever we give this way, we exactly capture the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't stay in heaven and go, I'm going to just send good wishes down to earth. Please be saved. Uh. He didn't do that. He actually became one of us. I don't know if we realize what, a, what an insult to God it was for him to become human on Christmas Day. We're like, what's wrong with that? I'm human. I'm, I'm awesome. What was so bad? Because he was God. He was infinite. 
He was everywhere at all times, and to be encased in a, in a jacket of meat and bones, to be stuck in one locale at a time, to have diarrhea. I don't know if you guys get taught stuff like that, but I tell them at church all the time, Jesus had diarrhea. Don't act like, because he was Jesus, he had none of the indignities of being human. He had it all. Acne, I'm sure he had acne. And just becoming one of us was a massive drop down for him. He didn't just help. He became poor so that we would become rich. In fact, he switched places with us. Now, I'm not saying the first task is go out there and give until you're broke so that some guy way out there will be richer than you. That's not the first call. It's not really about giving away a a lot of money to mimic this behavior. It's to understand what kind of heart that represents. So there's this third observation here. A generous spirit gives itself first to God. Paul says they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. I think that means a couple things. It means first they made sure that their own giving to their own church was faithful. You know, a lot of people, you know, have said to me in the past, oh, don't worry, I give so much to missions. Yeah, but you don't give anything to our church. I know, but all my giving is outside of here. And what Paul's teaching is they didn't do as they expected, but they were still faithful, which means their burden was tremendous. They made sure that their giving to their own church was intact and that they gave their hearts to the Lord as well, and then they gave to something else. He said that's why their giving will grow them spiritually. It wasn't just playing a shell game with redirecting limited funds. It was that after they had given themselves completely to the Lord, they gave themselves to others. I think at the heart of it, what he's really saying is this. God is never interested in our money before he has our hearts. And there is no way to shortcut that process and say, God, I can't give you my heart yet, but would you take some money in the meantime I don't believe that God is interested in that money. In fact, I don't think God needs the money at all. What energizes and drives the kingdom of God is not dollars and cents. It's hearts laid on the line and what that produces in the real world. You know, I think one of the reasons that we have that double-mindedness about generosity, that we love money and we love God, and many of us feel genuinely that that's the case. When I'm giving away, when I'm helping, I really do feel good, and I love God and other people, but I also love me some Xbox One, and I love me that Corinthian leather on my new Benz. I love all those things. So I'm trying to reconcile. I love God and his work, and I love my stuff. I love money. And I think the problem, the duality, rises by believing wrongly that I can reconcile those two loves. But I think Jesus said very plainly, you just can't do it. Any more than you can convince your wife, look, honey, I love you. I love her. I love both of you. Listen, listen. My love for her takes nothing away from my love for you. High five, girl. You're one of my favorite girls. I only got two of them. You're one of them. You should feel good about that. Now, women out there, how many of you are going to buy that one? Oh, I got me a good man. He's got so much love, he's split in between two of us. Does it work that way? Ever? Can it? Of course it can't. In our delusion, we might try to make up a world, an imaginary world, where that's possible. You know in your gut that's just a lie. It's not possible to love two things with the same heart that way. Especially when one of those things demands all of you. Now, if you're Mormon, I guess it's cool. I don't know how they do it. But when you say it's just us, no others... You can't reconcile that situation. There's no way to do it. So I believe that's where the single-mindedness of generosity comes in, is to realize I can't actually create a life where I'm permitted to say I love both God and money. I'm going to end up serving one of those two lovers with everything I have, all the while lying to myself and everyone else about who I'm really loyal to. 
I believe what God is after is not that we would split our resources with him and others, but that he would have the totality of our hearts. I think that's what he's always wanted, is to have, first of all, all of us. And Jesus said later very clearly that wherever you see your money, that's where you're also going to find your heart. Wherever you find your money going, it will follow the streams of your heart. When you follow your money, what does it tell you about where your heart is? You know, the reason we say those things is not to produce guilt and some kind of religious um, pressure on you. I, I really don't think of Christian life that way in terms of I'm doing badly or I'm doing poorly. I have an A or a C minus. That's just never really been the way. I, and I can't afford to look at it that way because I'm, I'm a D student, all right? So I can't look at Christian life by some grading scale like, oh, I was good this week. Oh, and last week I only had one quiet time. I, I was bad last week. I look at what I'm actually doing, good or bad, and I want to understand why I'm doing it. Life arises from a place. If I'm not having my devotional time with God seven days running, it's not supposed to just produce guilt. It's supposed to produce understanding. Where am I devoted then? If I don't feel any desire to come to him and spend time with him, where have I been putting that time? What is my heart wanting? It's dangerous to walk through life so self-unaware. And I'm convinced most people are very keen on observing others, but I've found as a pastor that most people in the church have a profound, almost pathological level of lack of self-awareness. They can write a treatise on everything everybody else is doing wrong. I'm like, let's just talk about you for a second. Do you, is there anything going on with you? What are you talking about? You know, like, is there anything you need to see about yourself? And it's as if I'm just, like, I turn into a lizard head or something. I really believe God wants us to understand where our hearts really are. And while everybody else might be convinced by our rhetoric, you have to be convinced in your own heart who you belong to. You can lie to the world, but you cannot lie to yourself or to God for very long. So I encourage you, figure out where your money's going and let it tell you something true about who has your heart. I'm probably going a little longer than Dr. Steve. Uh, I'm just going to give you one last observation, and then I'm going to get out of your life, okay? Here it is. A generous spirit keeps its promises. Let me tell you a riddle. Five birds are sitting on a wire, and four of them decide to fly away. How many are left on the wire? Where's my mathematicians at? Five birds are sitting on a wire. Four of them decide to fly away. How many are left on the wire? Someone shout it out. Zero? Five. That's right. Five birds sitting on a wire. Four decide to fly away. You still have five birds because deciding to fly away and actually flying away are two very different things. I think that's at the heart of what really Paul is saying in this text. It's cool to want to do something, even decide in your heart to do it, but it's the really doing it that changes your life. We all know this because around January 4th of jogging, that myth of jogging and getting up at 5 in the morning, that's pretty much done. It's run its course by January 4th, right? You spent 100 bucks on new running shoes and got good three, four days out of use out of them, and then, you know, like the treadmill is now starting to hang laundry, and you know that you've made a million decisions in your life that never really got kept. Doggone it, this is a year I'm finally going to get fit. Not, not because I want to look sexy, because I want to live to see 50. Then there are those flaming hot Cheetos <laughs> and the cheesy beef at Zippy's. And oh gosh, why is the world so stinking delicious? Do you get what I'm saying? A decision is not the same as an act. A lot of us are been there, decided that. <laughs> it's not been there, done that. Been there and wished that. Been there and thought about that. Been there and intended that. Paul says, here's my advice to you. And here's the interesting thing. He says, last year, you were the first to make a pledge. 
In fact, if we go ahead one chapter, he says in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 2, that it was their enthusiasm that caused many others to start giving. The Corinthians' opening pledge was what wowed the rest of the kingdom and sparked many other churches to say, you know what, if the Corinthians are going to do that, we will do our best too, doggone it. We're going to stand with you. And so he applauds them and says, your generosity of spirit, your desire and early obedience really sparked a movement. But the problem is that after you excited everybody else, they all paid and you did not. We cannot eat your good wishes out here in Jerusalem. I can't go to the market and say, I would buy that bread, but some friends in Corinthians in Corinth really wished I would have this bread. What do you say? The baker's not going to give you the bread because it takes real money to eat. I really believe that what we do in response to a conviction God gives us in the next hour or so after he gives it, makes all the difference in the world. I've believed this for many years as a Christian, that those things that I'm moved by, which I don't follow through on, will die. The decision to do a thing eventually is very often the same as the decision to do things never. Never. Let me give you a, an illustration that it's, it's Primarily relevant to parents, but every non-parent in this room will exactly understand what I'm talking about. Every kid gets to a stage where they go, uh, Mom, Daddy, we want a doggy, a puppy. And what's the conversation that takes place in every house? Oh, you want a puppy? Do you know how hard a puppy is to take care of? No parent ever goes, oh, yeah, puppies are so cute. Oh, good for you. They, we always go, do you know how hard it is, you stinking kid? You're hard enough. You want a dog in this house? And we know what's going to happen, right? Um, I'm going to end up taking care of it. I'm the one to end up cutting its hair, feeding it, walking it, cleaning its poop. What are you going to do? You, you want a puppy? Are you going to do any of the work? And what do the kids always say? Oh, we'll, we'll wake up extra early every day and walk the doggy. We'll pick up all the poo. We'll clean up all the pee-pee stains. And we will... No, they won't. But what if a parent said, fine, you really want a puppy? You promise to take care of it? I'm going to do it. And what if you bought that dog and you did not do a single thing for that dog? Never fed it, never walked it. First of all, you got to watch out where you're stepping in that house because there's going to be poop everywhere. And then one day, you're going to be getting up for work and go, what is that smell? And you're going to be looking all over the house and you're going to pull the couch back and there behind the couch is the carcass of a dead puppy. Emaciated stinking, rotting, worms coming up. You're going to bring those kids over. Come here, come here. Look at Fido over here. That's what happens when you ask for a thing and you make a promise and you do nothing about it. What will the kids say? Can we get a new puppy? Isn't that exactly what's going to Can we get another one? This one is so gross. Can we get a new one? And this time, we swear, we promise we'll take care of it. I wonder if the hallways of our souls are not littered with the carcasses of dead puppies. I mean, you come to church, you go to retreats, and we're always like, I want a fresh conviction from the Lord. I want it to move my spirit. And I think very often God will say to us, what happened last time I did that? Remember? You are so like, oh, I got to move to the inner city. <sighs> I got to go to Africa this summer. Oh, man, I got to start praying more. What happened that moment? You remember it? We were in full sync that day. Our ways were so coinciding. You felt exactly what I felt. You knew it. You almost cried. Some of us, that's a big deal. Almost crying is like life shattering. I was almost crying. That's how moved I was. I was truly moved. And then I went home and watched 24. And I completely forgot. For some of us, we get spiritual amnesia because Game of Thrones is on. On the same day, we, we go home from church like, doggone it, I forgot it all. And God says, you know, our hearts, our histories are littered with examples like that. Where he moved us so genuinely. Right there. And we felt it. It was right there. And then... Just like when you're almost about to throw up and you swallow back down. You know what I'm talking about? Just, 
That was close. I almost did something there. <laughs> Dodge that one. I, I use graphic illustrations because you remember them longer. You will think about dead puppies and almost throwing up for weeks to come. And I want you to remember that's what our soul dynamics are often like. I mean, why should God give us fresh convictions until we actually obey the convictions he has already given? You know what I mean? And that's why I'm convinced that what you do, really at our church, I don't teach an hour. I, I teach what you do in the next 10, 15 minutes to respond to whatever conviction will make all the difference. I preached this message one time in Philadelphia, and this, this woman walks up to me right after the service. She's a medical doctor in the city, and she starts rifling through her purse, and she comes out with this giant wad of cash, and she goes, here. I'm like, well, hold on, what is this? I, I'm not one of those kind of preachers. I don't need you to throw money at me. She goes, no, you don't understand. You kept talking about the next 15 minutes, and God was piercing my heart. And I said, God, what do I do here? I'm still at church. What can I do in the next 15 minutes to signal to you I've heard you? And she said, what I heard God tell me was, clean out your purse. Give this man everything in it and tell him to do with it whatever the Lord leads. So I'm obeying him right now. And that's what she did. And I said, I've never had that experience before, but I took it. felt very uncomfortable. I almost want to say, hey, everybody, she's given this to me. <laughs> I didn't, it looks so shady. I'm like, all right, thank you. I brought that money home, and I won't tell you the whole backstory, but there were some really tragic events going on in my own church back home that weekend. And I was able to turn that money into the start of a ministry fund that has grown and impacted a lot of people. And what I realized was how beautiful it is that this one woman out of a church of 400 right away heard that, came up, and did something. And I don't know what happened in her life, but I know what happened in hundreds of other lives because of that one simple act. I was preaching at another church, and this, this man said, when I heard you, I wasn't hearing anything about money, but that 10 minutes after thing was really getting me because I've got an issue with porn on my computer. And I just want you to know, I called my friend. I stepped out of the service. I called my friend and said, hey, as soon as I'm done here at church, I'm going to bring you my computer, and you can have it. He had just built this thing, a $6,000 rig, the ultimate gaming console, and he basically said, I'm going to give it to you. I'm not even going to clean out files. I'm just going to give it to you. You figure out what to do with everything on there. I got to see him a couple years later, and he said, you know, that little decision has revolutionized my whole life. I got a freedom that day from something that was plaguing me for like a decade, and it wasn't until I obeyed that one clear conviction right away that God began to change my life. That's an awesome testimony. I really believe that follow-up matters, that what we do one second, one minute, one hour after God gives that, that makes all the difference between doing something eventually and doing something never. Are you with me? I don't believe God is fighting every Sunday for our agreement, but he's fighting for our hearts. And in the end, you'll know what's happening in your heart by what's happening with your hands and feet. Now, I'll close with this. If you're a part of ICC, just like Harvest, there's going to be no end to the calls to give. We're involved in trying to do as much good in God's kingdom as we can. And a lot of that involves people being generous to the Lord's work. So you will hear about many great causes. Uh, and, and that's okay. I think that's good that your church invites you to participate in God's work all over the world. Jesus said something to us, that from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, he said, if you've been entrusted with a lot, I also expect a proportionally great return on that investment in your life. So maybe we'll argue, well, okay, but I'm not one of the people who has muchness. There's people in this church who have high net worth. I'm just an average Joe. Well, let me put myself right there with you because nobody envies my salary. I'm a pastor. How many of you, if you woke up tomorrow with my money, you'd be depressed? I'll just tell you that right now. If you woke up tomorrow with my salary, you'd be like, oh, man. I went to this website called richlist.com a few years ago, and I punched in my annual salary, 
and it told me where I ranked in the world's wealth. I'm going to show you this. I am the 46,688,821st richest dude on this planet. Better recognize. That's how I roll. Now, that doesn't seem like much. There's like almost 47 million people ahead of me in the rich line. But that still puts me at the top 0.77% of the world's population. I am better than the top 1% in terms of the wealth entrusted to me. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I cannot hear this verse and go, well, that doesn't apply to me. I just can't do it. We're so rich, I tried to give away a pair of shoes to this, this thrift shop. I've worn them once. They were still so clean, I would lick it on the bottom. That's how clean it was. Oh, I'm sorry. These appear to have been worn. Our, our, our clients won't accept these. Ain't your clients got nothing? Yeah, but those have been worn. I, I'm like, that's a rich country. Even our poor have standards. Unbelievable. That's the country you and I live in. And if I am better than the top 1%, I have something I have to say back to God, even regarding my money. I can't just rally the masses and go, I did my job, God. I have to think about my own personal wealth and what I do with it. And we have had many hard conversations, me and my wife, about what that would look like for us. We made our decision already that our kids are going to have to fend for themselves in college. That's a level of financial burden so astronomically high, I can't even look at it and pretend I could do something. I just go, all right then. Look, study hard, marry well, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> daddy, pray for you. You pay for it yourself. I don't know what to tell them. And that frees us up to do things for God's kingdom work, knowing that God can provide means for our children. The systems are out there. They might have a longer journey to becoming debt-free. But you have to have these kinds of conversations in your house or with your, yourself. If you think about it this way, we save and we save and we save as if we can guarantee how long we're going to live. And I believe that dying with great wealth is as shameful as waiting four years for the Olympics and then coming in eighth place and saying, well, coach, I was saving my energy. What are you saving it for? Four years you wait for one race, you still have air left in your lungs. Shame on you. You should be sprawled out on the track about to die. Four years you wait for a race and you're holding back now? Do you see the folly of saving up the resources for after it doesn't matter? You've got one shot on this planet. I have no idea how long that shot's going to last. But your money on earth is only useful while you're alive to do something with it. And every study has proven that to inherit wealth you did not work for is not a blessing but a curse. I'm not getting rich to make my descendants wealthy because they popped out of the right birth canal. The money God entrusts to me is for his kingdom while I'm alive. I want to give my kids enough to bury me properly and maybe to go to Hawaii once or something. I'm not trying to make my kids wealthy because I believe God has laid burdens on my heart while I'm breathing that he wants me to be a part of and to watch unfold. And I want to encourage you to have that same heart. What are you saving it for? Because you can't take any with you beyond the grave. But imagine the front row seat you'd have to the unfolding kingdom of God if he would have all of you, your heart, your time, your treasure, your talents. Imagine the world he would build through us. I want to encourage you to bow with me in prayer. I've said some provocative things that might run counter to your personal opinions on these issues, and you know I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I know that in the end, uh, there is an 
there's this openness we have to talk about our ideas and our convictions. I don't, I'm not calling any of you to convince the church around you or to convince other people. I'm simply inviting you to sit before your God, your Savior, who for your sake became poor so that you might become spiritually rich. And I want you to lay your life before him just under that examination, that loving, truthful examination and say, God, does my life reveal that you have me, really all of me? Do I truly belong to you? Because when all is said and done, that's the real story of all of our lives. Jesus said that the one thing that would compete the most for our hearts are worldly riches, the things I can hold and touch and measure and weigh. And a love for those things will shield my eyes from the beauty and the worth of his kingdom. I want to really encourage you to sit before the Lord and let him speak to you. So why don't we just do that now? I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let the Lord just, I'm going to invite him to come and speak to us. And would you do that for your own heart? Say, Lord, is there anything related to this subject I need to hear as I walk out of here? And will you, Holy Spirit of God, compel me to make some kind of real response to that conviction right now, this very hour? So let's just go into a time of listening prayer.